Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden uh, with the Unique Prep Free Library, and welcome to, as you can imagine, a very, very special edition of our Poetry and Conversation series. This is the grand finale for a month-long celebration of National Poetry Month. And I think that for a grand finale, we couldn't have, I mean, what, this is phenomenal that we have the people we have today, so. This is what a finale is supposed to be. Now, we'd like to thank, um, this wouldn't have been possible without our wonderful partner, Baltimore City Community College. We thank you, Ms. Virgie Williams. You have been wonderful, and thank you to also all of the great poets who participated all month long. However, if I may, with the point of personal privilege, because I'm at the mic, in terms of all the wonderful poets, Ms. Sonia Sanchez, the first ever, first ever Poet Laureate of Philadelphia, just one, of course, of the many awards and recognition she's received in her career. She's also a professor and a national and international lecturer on black culture and literature, women's liberation, peace, and racial, and racial justice. She's also the author of more than 16 books, and many of them are outside. You can purchase them today and have them personally signed and joining her, and he will be on the stage in a few minutes. Um, Mr. Tony Medina, uh, who is the two-time winner of the Patterson Prize for Books for Young People and the author of 16 books for adults and young adults, the most recent, I and I, Bob Morley. He's also the first ever professor of creative writing at Howard University. So without further ado, and I must tell you my note said, oh, you've got this wonderful audience. Tell them about all the other programs. You can just look, prettlibrary.org, compass. <laughs> because I know you would like to hear from Ms. Sonia Sanchez. Oh, okay, so you want me just to? Hi, I'm, I'm told that we have a conversation with um, uh, Brother Tony, and um, so I'm, I'm gonna be a fill-in until he gets here. <laughs> but what? If you don't mind, uh, the, I don't mind the camera. I mind the flash, especially when I'm trying to, uh, to read. It blinds you, you know, believe it or not, right? Um, but um, the joy of being back in Baltimore, I'm always um, you know, thrilled to be here. Uh, it's an amazing city, and, and the history and history here is always amazing uh, as far as I'm concerned. One of the things I could talk about <clears throat> until Tony gets here is that I don't know if you know that we're doing a, uh, one of my first projects as Poet Laureate is to do something that I've wanted to do for a while, and that was to, to have um, a peace mural. Yeah, yeah, a peace mural, P-E-A-C-E -E mural, right. Uh -huh. uh, they wanted to do um, a mural, and I said, you know, hey, why don't we do a peace mural? That would be something that uh, would last. Uh, and so I called it um, uh, Peace is a Haku Song. Um, and one of the things we're asking people to do is to send uh, some peace haku. 
So when I when I got that, uh, you know, people kind of looked at me and said, "Okay, peace." You know, you can't have peace. You know, like peace is impossible. You know, and you just listen to these comments from people. I says only impossible if indeed um, if people don't work for you no know, peace. And so, so I said, you know, uh, there is no, as Gandhi said, there is no way to peace, but peace is the way when you begin to do the things about peace. Hi, how you doing, my dear? But I hear you have a bad throat. Yes. Yeah, don't kiss me. Don't hug me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is uh, Brother Tony Medina. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing is, uh, I called Sister Toni Morrison and Sister Maya Angelou and Sister Alice Walker and said, send me three lines and four lines of peace. And they did it like that. Um, because they understand definitely the need uh, for us to talk again this uh, dialogue in a very serious way about peace, not only for ourselves and for the country but, and for the world, but also for our children. We wonder why our children do what they do because the adults do what they do, you know, uh, and that is why. Um, and so we've got to, on many levels, begin to, to do this thing called peace, to, to invigorate the country towards peace. So we have a peace mural where we will have uh, Brother Common, uh, Brother Talib, um, uh, Brother Odin Pope, uh, Brother Kristen McBride, uh, do the music and rap about peace. Uh, and the three sisters do the haku about peace. And then the painter, of course, does it. But along the way, as we march towards the site, we will have some Buddhist monks and other different uh, religious people, you know, walk that walk with us towards this mural of peace. And the children, and we're going to have sidewalks of peace, you know, because I'm asking the whole city to kind of put on the, the sleeves of peace, finally. You know what I mean? We need to put on the tongues of peace also, too. Um, and the saliva of peace. And the toe jam of peace. <laughs> and the feet of peace. And the hands of peace. I mean, really. Um, you know, and so your children, the ones I've taught for 40 years, and I taught this brother also, too. Um, and, you know, he, uh, he's doing a program at a place called Howard, because I was down there as a visiting professor, and I said, you know, y'all really need to have a professor of creative writing and not keep inviting us in to do a semester. And so they got someone down there, and that's good. But all of the black colleges need professors of creative writing, do they not, you know? Yeah. So if you can, I have some um, bookmarks um, that I'll leave around and some of you who have written some haku about peace, you can send it in, okay, and, uh, and send the haku. We have already about a thousand haku. I know you sent, you know, uh, 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 yes, uh-huh, and we only could choose one, right? But we're going to have kiosks leading up and sidewalks of peace and flags with peace haku. And already we've been asked by three other cities to come and help them do murals about peace. Hey. We got to do it. Otherwise, we might as well all go home, pull down the shade, you know what I mean? Bring out the vino, you know what I mean? Just drink and smoke and forget about it. Because if we don't do it now, right now, and begin this, this march towards peace, 
No, there will be no peace. And there will be no planet. I mean, no, no, there will be no humans on the planet. The earth says, you people, if you can't do it right, I'm going to make sure you all just go under. You know, I don't care if it's going to be earthquakes, water, whatever. But the earth is saying, Mother Earth has said, I'm going to survive you if you continue to act like fools, you know. And we do act like fools, do we not? You know, you know I mean, we act like fools when it comes about the idea of peace and, and, and staying alive and keeping our children alive. So, so just after we finish, I will uh, pass out some of the, um, you know, the, the bookmarks so you can have it and then just send, you know, um, you know, it, okay? Any comments, any questions? Yes. October. They haven't set a date because we're trying to, we're try, believe that we're trying to coordinate all those people who are contributing to get there. Now that is in itself, you know, something else again. But um, that's, that's what we would do. And we need to do it, you know, all over uh, the country and in some ways begin to tell uh, our children and tell the country and the people who run this, this country that it's about time for a little peace, period, you know. Because you and I know that we, the richest country in the world, finance wars. And if we, y'all, me, all of us, you know, don't begin to tell the people we will not finance any more wars, you know. Hey, because it takes money for a war. It just doesn't happen, you know. And the, the moment you take the money away from it, the wars cease. That happened in South Africa. When money was taken away, people said, well, we got to figure out peace. You know, one day we got to figure out peace for our children, you know, period. So, hey, Tony, how you be? I'm all right. Good. Can you hear my ugly voice? <laughs> I'm battling a little cold. Yeah, I hear you. Take a lot of vitamin C. Yes, I've been Good. doing it all day. Mm -hmm. How is everybody? So what are we supposed to be doing? Well, I don't know. I mean, I initially was coming down to read, right? And then I guess you too, but someone said we were going to have a conversation, and they said you were going to, you know. I so guess we, we could have a conversation and some poems. What do y'all think? <laughs> you want to hear a poem? All right, I'm going to try to do a poem. <clears throat> with this voice. This is a brand new poem. And you know, Sonia Sanchez is the, she's a master of haiku, right? <clears throat> There's a similar form of Japanese verse, uh, syllabic verse called the Senryu, spelled S-E-N-R-Y-U. And this is called Senryu for Trayvon Martin. Skittles bag, pockmarked holy, bleeds in rain puddle. Hoodies hides no blood, tears or eyes shut by wet grass. Screams pierce night sky, a father's stomach pits. My boy, my boy, shot through sky. Skittles like Roman candle burst blood from open chest. Stars squint and stare. Raindrops glare in moonlight. 
witnessing bloodletting, morning grass like wet face of boy screaming bloody murder. Gunpowder blinds the eye of justice, reckless as a dumb vigilante. Silence of blood clouds night drizzle where wind whistles through hole and can. Empty bag of Skittles, crushed can of iced tea, last game with father. Rain chews night air, gnaws at brown boy flesh, grinning teeth of bullets. Rain stains brown boy's back as blood pours from chest, turning the green grass red. How blues is born, Rain falls steady on dead end street, strewn with black body. Mama's cries hang on rain hooks, ornamenting night wind's grin. Blood petals pock, grim face of grass like lotus on rain slick back of black boy. Not enough lifetimes to take back powder burn cries to peace my boy, back. And of course, hello, of course, as long as I've lived, I have seen a lot of Trayvons. Some of you have too. And then we began to ask the question, what does that mean as far as we are concerned as a people? But what does it mean that we then stay reactive constantly? What does it mean that we then don't have things set up where we protect our children? What does it mean that we become less of activists? What does it mean that when I go on the road, people ask me, are you still talking some of the same thing? I said, no, I'm not, but I am still talking about peace and freedom and justice. What does it mean that people then say at some point that money is more important than anything else, that that's the new freedom? What does it mean that our children cannot walk the streets? Uh, you know, but what does it mean also, too, that we, on many levels, you know, allow sometimes you know, the vigilante spirit to live in, this, in America, and we respond to it only when one of us dies, when one of us is killed, so one of the things that I was talking to a bunch of young people about is that you know we are reactive quite often, but the point is that we need to be more and more proactive. And one of the poems that I had written for a 17-year-old, again, who died, was to talk about, and let us not let this brother get lost you know, in the activism around his death. Let us not forget the beauty, the beauty of his life the beauty to have lived one year, seven years, 14 years, or 17 years. Because when activism comes, sometimes we forget the beauty of life. You know, I don't care how short it was. If one is killed, if one drowns, if one dies from a car, it's still, we have to talk about the beauty of those years. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying because I'm talking about, in a, in a, in a real sense, 
that we end up writing the same kinds of poems over and over and over again, and we have the same emotions over and over again, and at some particular point, that lessens us and weakens us. I remember, not because I was there, but I remember reading that whenever an incident like this happened, that the NWACP used to send workers down to the site. Within 24 hours, a worker was there. What did that worker do? The worker went in and took testimony. The worker went in and saw the site. The worker went in and saw what was happening. So therefore, when a case started, they had the information. They couldn't change information. But you're noticing that things are changing now. And when things change, people say, well, you know, maybe the boy was out doing that. You got to hear that. We've got to always understand what it means to be protective of our children and also to be protective of a sight, what happens. And so the poem that I read for to these young people was a poem simply um, about um, the death of a 17-year-old. And that's what this was, the death of a 17-year-old, um, a young man who, who died, but a young man who died also probably because we haven't continued the battle in this country. I mean, there is a battle going on in this country, and many of us have opted out of that battle. You know, uh, you know we've opted out of it, and we only come back in it you know, when we, there is a death. You know, and then it lasts for you know, a month or so, and then we go back to you know, watching who's sleeping with whom on the idiot box, you know what I mean? And talking about, oh, she looks so cute when she did that. Is that so? Right, you know. Um, you know no, I'm, and I'm being facetious, and I'm not. I'm being serious, however, that, you know, in the 21st century, if we do not secure our place in history, in history, we're in trouble. You know, we are liable to be wiped out. Because there's no reason that you need blacks. Come on, stay with me. Why do you need blacks? You got other people coming in who can take the places of the work that we used to do. You know, why do you need blacks? I'm a teacher. Oh, that's why they're closing 90 schools in some of the cities, right? Tell me about being a teacher and safe, as my father told me when I first started to work. Huh? Tell me about being a government worker. What is still left open that we can all go into service. You know, and I'm not trying to be, but I'm trying to talk about us, finally, that in this century, how we've got to look at ourselves in a very real sense, not with all ways of looking at ourselves, right? Not with thinking the same thoughts over and over and over again. Every 10 years, the same thing happens. We think and we act the same way. Come on, people. We're much more creative than that. Come on, you know. This is our country. These are our children. You can't be selective about the children. Oh, that's my child, you know, got a PhD, got an MA. Got this, right? The other child in trouble. Oh, that ain't my child. No, these are all our children. The ones who, that's right. We can't be selective about the ones we want to be our children. You know, these are all our children. And unless we work for them, you know, work for them, you know. And what we're going to have to do again is start going in. You know, I don't know, some of y'all might have done it, go into the Congress, you know, and raising hell again, sitting in, going to the schools and sit in and raise hell again. And our children will be more respectful of us so they know that we're working for them and doing something. Yes, they will. You know it.
This is the new civil rights that will happen here if you want to have to call it civil rights. But I like to call them freedom rights. These are the new freedom rights now, you know, in these schools, in these schools, you know, and also, you know, any place we walk on the streets, you know, we must be free enough to look any way we want to look, even if we're not on the stage shaking our booties, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. But anyway, I can't turn the pages with that. Ooh, a patriarchal podium. <laughs> I know I can't see you and you can't see me, right? <laughs> well, if I can do, maybe I can just turn around and pick this up. A poem of praise. Man is an alien in this world in spite of all the pleasures. Man is an early traveler who tastes in himself the world. When you wake up in the morning, man, meditate on your beginning. Meditate as you flow in the waters of your birth. Meditate on the nine months you rest unseen and the world awaits you when you come soiled and crying. And they pick you up like one small melon and hush up your crying. At first, you do not speak and your legs are like orphans. At first, your two eyes cross themselves in confusion. At first, your mouth knows only the full breasts of milk, a sweet taste of this world. There is nothing which does not come to an end, and to live one year is good in the sight of God. You are born worthy of praise, all things that he makes are worthy of praise. In your days made up of dreams, in your eyes made of dawn, you walk towards old age, child of the rainbow, child of beauty through the broad fields. And your eyes gained power, and your limbs grew long like yellow corn, and abundance of life, and abundance of joy. With beauty before you, you walk towards old age. There is nothing which does not come to an end, and to live. Seven years is good in the sight of God. Silently to life, you spoke, young male child. You praised life coming as a river between hills, and your laughter was like red berries in summer, and your shouting like giant eagles. As you walked towards old age, young male child, your voice harnessed the wind. There is nothing which does not come to an end, and to live, Fourteen years is good in the sight of God. Father, behold me in a sac sacred manner. Mother, behold me in a sacred manner. My family sitting holy, behold me in a sacred manner, for I am man, and I must run with the evening tide, must hold up my hands, for my life is opening before me. I am going to walk far to the east. I hope to find a good morning somewhere. I am going to raise my own voice. I hope to have peace somewhere. Father, mother, behold me now. I have moved to a house of darkness, but your memories of me light my way. I do not cry, for I am man, no longer a child of your womb. There is nothing which does not come to an end and to live. 
17 years is good in the sight of God. That's for that brother. We have to keep up front with this case, the good and beauty of that young man, you know, because there would be droppings along the way that this young man did this and had this and that. Heck, he's a 70-year-old. Huh. Tell me what else is going on. But you understand what I'm saying, how we have to keep the beauty, you know, and the thing of this human being before they change, you know, and they are changing the you know, trajectory now at this point. It's changing slowly but surely. So whatever we know, so we've got to always bring it back to the beauty of this young man, you know, period. You know, and the beauty of walking upright also too, you know, as this human being. So do we talk in between? They said you were gonna leave this. Come on. All right. <laughs> leave. No, I mean they said that, you know, they were gonna leave in, in a conversation and reading. Now who, that's what I reported. Okay. <laughs> Let me just read this one for the, for, the, for the young people. A mother's prayer. My mother sends me out into the world clutching her black Bible and black rosary. I round the corner and feel her eyes through the curtain. Her breath, heavy, trails me like a second backpack, whispering to me telepathically, come back safely, come back safely, come back. My mother spends the day busying herself with chores and appointments and things to do to keep from thinking thoughts that mothers think when their sons go out into the world like homing pigeons. Dear Mama, I did what you said. I wore my shirt tucked in my pants. I looked both ways crossing the street. I said yes ma'am and no ma'am when spoken to. I can't understand what went wrong. I just went into the store to get some candy and the man behind the counter kept watching me as I went through the aisles looking for chips and a soda. Then he started accusing me of taking stuff, asking me what do I have in my bag. I told him nicely, all I have are books and my Game Boy, but he called me a liar and grabbed at my bag yelling at me to open it. He called the cops even though all that fell out were books and paper and my Game Boy that broke. The cops didn't believe me. They even put me in handcuffs and took me to the station, scaring me into signing a letter saying I took stuff. Do you believe me, Mama? What was your thought when, um, when you found out, as a mother, when you found out about the, the Trayvon Martin incident? Well, my dear brother, you don't separate being a mother from being a human being. 
or a father and a human being or the brother and a human being, you know, anytime I hear about any death or any killing, I, you're stopped in your tracks, you know, you stop and you look and you say simply, you know, you want to know the facts, you know, what indeed, um, what happened. You see, when our children go into these stores, they're quite often that are not man or woman by people in your community. They're at risk already. Come on. When our children go into a community, when people perceive the people who live in the community as powerless, they're at risk already. What I was talking about is, you know, empowering ourselves again in our own communities. So therefore, when we go in, when our children can go to the corner store and get whatever it is, you know, uh, they want to get, then there is no such thing as someone trailing you behind, behind you. You know what I'm saying? That's finally. And that's a whole different way of looking at ourselves as a community. You know, when we finally stop moving out of our communities and going out to the suburbs, you see, the point of get, making sure that you got an education, right, and became a professor was not for you and other people to move so far away from the community, right, that all of a sudden, you know, let me, for instance, everyone knows, you know, I live in a place called Germantown. And Germantown, when I first moved, when I first moved there, when I first got ready to move to Philadelphia, they showed me property around New Penn and in Chestnut Hill. I knew nothing about Philadelphia. What I did know is that how different it was. I said, well, don't you have a neighborhood with all kinds of people, black, green, white, purple, blue, living together? And, and the woman said, well, yeah. Um, except I don't handle that property, you know. I had three weeks to get a place, you know, because I was getting to teach, right? I said, well, who does? Well, she said, I'll get somebody. So I ended up with a house, an old house in Germantown where you have all kinds of different people, students and black, white, elderly, all kinds of people living there, right? But I also have a, a store two blocks away. And I've seen the store change along the way. And so I go into the store quite often, and you see meat that's been jabbed full of red dye, you know, to keep it looking like it's new meat, right? You know, fresh meat. And then you see vegetables and fruit that looks like uh, they've, they've had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> you know? You know. So what you do is you get a tray, and you start putting that stuff in and you push the bell, guy comes out. He said, look, my money and all the other people's money is just the same, you know. Just help me with that flashing. You can take a picture, but don't flash, okay? Thanks. Um, and, I, and the guy said, lady, what you doing taking all the stuff out, putting in the cart? I said, because, you know, would you take this home to your wife? And your children? He didn't say anything. He said, I'm going to call the police. I said, good. Call the police. We need the police here. We need a press conference here. We really do need to talk about the stuff that you do.
But they started bringing in better-looking food because every time I go in there, I do the same thing. Well, what does that mean? It means at some point I got an education. It means at some point I became fearless. It means at some point you got to be an advocate for people who feel that they can't do this for themselves. That's why we're educated. What I remember, and I do it because I, I remember, and sometimes I don't like to talk about it. There was a woman standing there with four children. She asked me a question. She said, how do you do that? And, you know, you know, I had this agitated thing with this man, you know, whatever, taking stuff in the back. And I turned to what do you mean, my sister? She said, how do you do that? And I looked down at her children. I said, what, what, no, exactly what do you, how, I said, what do you mean? She said, how do you do that? How do you say to someone what you said to him? I said, well, I said to him what I said to him because one, he was wrong. The store is wrong. And you're supposed to say it. She said, but how do you do that? Hear that? That's what we have. We have people asking, how do you do that? You know, and you've got to answer how you do that. You know, that's what Martin did and Malcolm did. Mega did, you know. You know, the sisters did, you know, huh? All these sisters, you know, who stood up and said, this is how I do these sisters who began to talk about, you know, you know, integrating the buses even before our dear sisters sat down. How do you do that? These women who had come into these universities, you know, and gotten that and got this education and became advocates for people who didn't know how to do it because they saw themselves as helpless. You know, as poor, you know, as unable to speak. So if we can speak, then we do it. Do we not? That's what that's about. And that's what, you know, sometimes divides us from some of the other writers who are writing today. Because they don't see themselves as activists or being advocates for people, you know. They will say simply, I just want to write, Sister Sonia. You know, I don't want to do anything else that in, in peace to writing. Um, I don't want to do anything else, but it's not just about writing. It's about also saying simply, you know, how do we set up a community where our children can walk, you know, free of the guns, free of the supermarkets with people, you know, coming behind and shooting, free of the people also who have taken over these communities, you know, who have no consciousness and the consciousness they have is only about how they can hustle, you know, you know, period. That's a hard thing to do. But that's the new thing that we got to do. We can't turn away from it. We can't say it doesn't exist. We can't move all the way out to the suburbs, right? You know, and the thing that I used to remember about our neighbor, our black neighborhoods is that you had doctors living in our neighborhood. Come on, remember that? You went down the corner to the doctor. As a doctor, a dentist, you know, they all lived in the same neighborhood, you know, primarily because they couldn't go, they couldn't move out to the suburbs, you know, right? And so we all lived together, you know, and we all, in a sense, then were there for each other. You know, we need this again. We need to understand truly that in spite of what we have gathered, you know, and gotten, 
What we must do finally is begin to say community, community, wherever we are, community, community, wherever we are. That's important, you know. And that's important as far as our, our, our work is concerned. Um, so, I don't know, what, what should I read? Let me read um, Community. What do we do in a, in, in a sense about drugs? When you and I know that in our community, people make living off drugs. Do they not? Yes, they do. You know, um, drugs support a lot of the communities now. Because America is so smart, it says you can't come down to the big, biggest hustle, which is Wall Street. And we saw that, did we not? Oh, yes, we did. The biggest hustle is Wall Street. And America says you can't come down for that biggest hustle, but you can stay in your own communities and hustle each other. And it takes a certain amount of consciousness then to not do that, does it not? Um, and drugs is one of the things that will make us forget our corpuscles, you know, our blood, our own blood. You know, you forget your child's face when you are running to get some drugs. You say to someone, did you see your child? What child? You know, I don't even remember her face. I don't even remember her name. I don't remember, you know, if she went outside today to play. I don't remember if she has food even. I mean, that happens. So anyway, let me talk about some of our communities that exist and, uh, and they're hard at some point. Uh, for us to deal with. Hmm? <laughs> but it's done with love. It's done because I've seen us struggle to be. I've seen this when I watched my father, you know, come north and couldn't get a job teaching because they said that he was a southern teacher. And so he couldn't teach in these schools. Ain't that something? You know. And so I saw my father go downtown and get a job to support his family in chock full of nuts. I saw my father do that. And I saw the pain in his eyes when he came home to Harlem. You know? But that's also my father in, in an interview when someone asked, you know, has your daughter always been this way? And my father said, oh, no, she was so quiet. <laughs> and she was little. And it's true. I was quietly quiet. You know why? Because I was a child who just loved to read, and that's what I did. You know, I was a child who got out of high school at 16, and then when I got into Hunter College, the world opened up to me, and I saw, whoa, the massive, 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 massive racism in the university. And I was determined one day to change it. That's why I became very much involved with black studies. I resolved that nobody would come to a university and not see himself or herself, period. Be you black, white, green, purple, blue, whatever. You got to hear that. Imagine we came to the university and the only time we saw her mention of us being these African-Americans doing, doing some history class when they said that black folks were slaves and they enjoyed it. They weren't upset. Nothing about anyone escaping. Nothing about the resistance movement. Nothing about Martin Delaney. 
Nothing, nothing at all. But there we were with a pitcher eating a watermelon. I taught at a place called Amherst College, my brothers and sisters. And my office was right next door to a man by the name of Commager. That same Commager who wrote those history texts. So one day, I knocked on his door. And I, he said, oh, he said, come in. And I went in. And he said, you're the new faculty member. I said, yes, I am <clears throat> up here at Amherst College. I said, may I sit down? He said, yes. I said, I've always wanted to ask an historian this question. Why did you write what you wrote about us as African Americans? And he said, well, you had to do that if you're going to sell these books in the South. I said, even when you knew that it was a lie? So that was a joy that we began to have people write our own stories. You know, we began to write our own stories. And as a consequence, you know, we began to move in a different fashion, in a different way. Yeah. So any of the people from Obama and everybody, Obama is president because there was a Martin and a Malcolm and a Medgar and black studies and poets and writers. Come on. You know, he couldn't have made it otherwise. Y'all went out and voted for him, most of you. <laughs> right? Yes, you did. I went out and voted also, too. And why? And I remember I had a conversation with my father, although he was dead, because I voted in Fluid someplace, I don't know, St. Louis someplace. And I, by the time I got there, Obama was president. And I got, went in my hotel room. And I said, I remember my father said to me once that we would never have a black president. That's what he said. And I said, oh, yes, we will. He's all, oh, Sonia, we'll never have a black president. I said, oh, yes, we will. He said, why do you say that? I said, because we are changing the landscape of America. I've taught 40 years. I've taught a bunch of people in 40 years. They were black, green, white, purple, blue, whatever. We changed the landscape of America, you know, you know. Musicians, writers, artists change the landscape. White, black, green, purple people change this landscape. And so there was a possibility here. So I knew that within this northern landscape where I lived that we would have, certainly, this president. That's real. But that was work, you see. But we can't settle back and say, oh, well, we got this president, right? Because America said, you know, if you watch the fiasco of the Republican Party, nominees, whatever, and you, show, and you saw the sheer ignorance, sheer ignorance, come on, sheer ignorance, you know, overt ignorance, overt racism, whatever. You understand, you better understand what we're talking about now in this country. Because I didn't have to say it. If you just watched that, you saw exactly what was going on, what was happening. You know? And we should have seen it from the very beginning. Imagine a president and a Supreme Court justice who is going to tell him what to say when he's being inaugurated. Imagine the guy giving it to him wrong. I mean, come on, people. All your heads could have gone back. Should have popped back and said, and the guy says, oh, I just forgot. You know, there's a book you can read from. You know, you don't have to memorize this stuff, right? 
So that was the first indication. And then, lo and behold, out come the Republicans that we are not going to help this man do anything while he's here. And we all should have gone down at that point and said, then resign. No, no. If you're not going to, you're not helping a president. You are helping America get what they're supposed to, the people. See, we forget the most important three words. We the people. Come on. We the people. So what we need to say is that then you leave. You get out of Dodge. We don't need you because this is about we the people. You got to hear that. You know, and we forget those three important words in important documents, we the people, and the power that we have with those three words, we the people. So anyway, ah, jeez. I uh, did a, a poem talking about we the people for uh, Havel, the president of Czechoslovakia when he got the Freedom Medal in Philadelphia. And um, I was asked to do a poem on that occasion. And uh, when we finished, he said, well, Professor Sanchez, I don't have to say too much. I said, my dear brother, there's never, never enough to be said about freedom. You know, freedom and justice. And the interesting thing about me sometimes is I think I know where every poem is and then I am, I am always startled when I don't know where the poems are, right? So let me go to the beginning of the book and see where they are, okay? <laughs> ah! Ooh! Poem for July 4th, 1994, page 57. Isn't it nice when you can laugh at yourself? We need to do that. For President Václav Havel, one, it is essential that some may be grafted to bones, marrow, earth, clouds, blood, the eyes of our ancestors. It is essential to smell the beginning words where Washington, Madison, Hamilton, Adams, Jefferson assemble amid cries of the people lack information. We grow more and more skeptical. The Constitution is a triple-headed monster. Blacks are property. It is essential to remember how cold the sun, how warm the snow snapping around the ragged feet of soldiers and slaves. It is essential to stream the sky with the saliva of Slavs and Germans and Anglos and French and Italians and Scandinavians and Spaniards and Mexicans and Poles and Africans and Native Americans. It is essential that we always repeat, we the people, we the people, we the people. Two, let us go into the fields, one brother told the other brother, and the sound of exact death raising tombs across the centuries, across the oceans, across the land. Three, it is essential that we finally understand this is the time for the creative human being, the human being who decides to walk upright in a human fashion in order to save this earth from extension. This is the time for the creative man-woman who must decide that she, he, can live in peace 
racial and religious and sexual justice on this earth. This is the time for you and me, African Americans, whites, Latinos, Chicanos, gays, Asians, Jews, Native Americans, lesbians, Muslims, Africans. All of us must finally bury the elitism of race superiority, the elitism for sexual superiority, the elitism of economic superiority, the elitism of religious superiority. So we welcome you on the celebration of 218 years, Philadelphia, America. So we salute you and say, come, come, come. Move out into this world. Nourish your lives with a spirituality that allows us to respect each other's birth. Come, 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 nourish the world where every three days, 120,000 children die of starvation or the effects of starvation. Come, 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 nourish the world where we will no longer hear the screams and cries of women, girls, and children in Bosnia, El Salvador, Rwanda, Sudan, Iraq, <laughs> Mama, Dada, Mama Sita Baba, Mama, Papa, Popey, Mama. The soldiers are marching in the streets near the hospital, but the nurses say we are safe, and the soldiers are laughing, marching, firing, calling out to us. I don't want to die. I'm only nine years old. I'm only 10 years old. I'm only 11 years old, and I cannot get out of the bed because they have cut off one of my legs. And I hear the soldiers coming towards our rooms, and I hear the screams, and the children are running out of the rooms, and I can't get out of the bed, and I don't want to die. Don't let me die, Rwanda, America, United Nations. Don't let me die, Europe, Asia, Africa. Don't let me die. And if we, excuse me. And if we nourish ourselves, our communities, our countries, and say, no more Hiroshima, no more Auschwitz, no more Wounded Knee, no more Middle Passage, no more slavery, no more Bosnia, no more Rwanda, no more massacres, no more Sudan, no more intoxicating ideas of racial superiority. As we walk towards abundance, we will never forget the earth, the sea, the children, the people, for we, 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 the people, will always be arriving, a ceremony of thunder, waking up the earth, opening our eyes to human monuments, and it'll get better. It'll get better if we, the people, work, if we, the people, organize, if we, the people, resist, if we, the people, come together for peace, racial, social, religious, and sexual justice, it'll get better. It'll get better. eBay, 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 So let's talk about poetry. Yeah, yeah, it's poetry month. Yeah, we should. And today we celebrate my book being published.
and Onion of Wars. Farewell, friends. So when you were coming up in the 60s as a poet, um, and now that you see new, new generations of poets of color and other poets of conscious, what do you think about what the younger poets are doing today um, as opposed to what you and Amiri and Haki and Jane Cortez and Nikki Giovanni, all these folks were doing back in the 60s and 70s when they started out? But don't separate them because you have to remember that these are the poets who train y'all. So you can't separate it. You know, although people do separate themselves from us, right? But you wouldn't have a voice if we hadn't made the way for the voice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, right. So you don't separate them. You know, you watch and you listen. Um, you, you teach. Uh, many of the poets, poeting, I've taught. And some of them, you know, they write well. Many of them write well. They're good craftspeople. Um, and that's important, that we, that we learn the craft. You know, because you know, I've always insisted, you know, that you learn the craft. That, yeah. you know, if you don't learn, I mean, I have. I mean, people, they always think, well, you know, you're so hip. Why are you talking about craft? Well, I'm talking about craft because there is discipline, you know, in that free verse. You know, there is something called discipline. There's a reason why you put one word on a, pay, on a line and then 15 on the next line. You know, there's a reason for that. Um, but, you know, I think sometimes many of us were not motivated by the idea that we were going to, in quotes, become famous. You know, we were motivated by the idea that, you know, when you came, when you came into this arena called poetry, right, you looked up and said simply, this is what I want to do. And why? Because I love this thing called language. Woo! You know, it's something to have a love affair with language, you know? I mean, when you write something and it's so, it feels so good, I mean, it's better than being in bed with somebody, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know. Pardon me, moi, but it's the truth, you know? I mean, I mean, that, you know, you get up, I mean, you move around. I mean, when I finish a book, I always go out on my porch and I let out a big, ah, scream. And the first time I did that, my neighbors, right, <laughs> thought something was wrong. <clears throat> but to do this well and to do it is not to be an authority on poetry. It's to be a discussion about what it means to love language what it means to have words dance on your tongue, you know, what it means to have words move throughout your body and caress you, you know, what it means to walk with the, the beautiful language, you know? I mean, you know, you walk down the street and you see poetry all around you. You take out your book and you write a line, but why do I want to celebrate this earth and people? Because I love the earth and the people. Not that I love the poem. I mean, I hope you're hearing the difference. You know, I love the earth. I love the people. I will put them in a poem, 
but the poem is just part of it. You know, it is the love, the love for people, you know, the love for us as human beings that propels you to write that poem. It, 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 it is not just the poem. The poem is not the end. The poem is part of this, you know, trail, part of this tra tra no, track, part of how we walk on this earth. I mean, the poem is like, yeah, I saw that beautiful child. That was a poem about him, about her. But that's just part of the traveling, you know, part of this being on this earth. The poem is just part of it. I, I don't know if I'm, you're hearing what I'm saying, you know, and there's a difference here. And that's what I, I try to say sometimes, you know, to people. Um, and I'm not too sure they understand. I mean, there's no award that can replace how you feel when you finish a poem. Yeah. You know, none, none. When you finish the poem and then you give it to the universe, and it's no longer yours when you do that. You know, when you write the book, that poem is no longer yours. You know, know. it belongs to everybody else out there, you know, period. The poem right. is always recreating itself in, in everyone that reads it or hears it. Yeah. Well, I, I, think, I think that's an easy word, recreating itself, Tony. Take it further than that. Take it deeper. Get to your gut. No. <laughs> the poem is not recreating itself. The poem is settling in. It settles in to the marrow and to the blood. You read a poem, and the poem doesn't just say, you don't, and when you read it out loud as you should do it, it's not then just recreating itself. When you read that poem, that poem comes in goes all the way in and stays there and settles in. So when you walk down the street the next day, the poem is saying, I'm with you. You know, you can go and talk to that person. You can defend yourself. Come on. You can, you can, you can go into a classroom and challenge someone when they're saying something wrong. That's that poem giving you the energy to do that. You know, it's mixing with your blood. You know, it's mixing inside of you. That, that poem becomes you. It's not a recreation. It becomes you. So therefore, when you write a poem, and I know you feel that, and you know that, because I've heard your poetry, and I've heard you in a workshop. When that poem, you know, comes in, when you give that poem to someone, people say to you and to all of us, you changed my life. But what they're saying is that the poem came inside me. It didn't stay out someplace, you know, you know in, in the wings, but it came in and became a part of your marrow, you know, of you. You know, all over you. And that poem then allows people to move, you know, and, 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 and live and be beautiful. The poem will make people say simply, I am beautiful. I mean, just think. And, and, and this is before you, my dear brother. Just think, I remember some of you, other sisters about to remember when people didn't think they were beautiful because they were black. Because they had big noses. You know, they had hair that went every which way. You know what I mean? Had big lips. You know? You know? They were dark, brown, yellow. You know, not pretty. The yellow one said, oh, people picking on me. The black one said, I wish I were yellow. The brown one said, well, I'm all right. You know, whatever. <laughs> you know? But this is 
But we began to say in a poem, hi, yellow black girl, walking like the wherever you be, however that goes. You had to identify some of that and just say it's okay. You're just as black as everybody else, even if you are high yellow, you know. You, and you made it possible for people to look at themselves and read a poem and say, I'm black too. Listen to that. You know, and that's what I meant by the poem coming inside, you know, and 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 settling in. Yes, thank you. You know, going all in and staying. So it propels you to go into a classroom, you know, and feel good about yourself or go to work and feel good about yourself, you know, in your neighborhood feel good. I mean, in your marriage, feel better about yourself, you know. Because people said, you know, your poem made me either get out of a bad marriage or learn how to navigate a marriage. This is what we do. That's what you do in terms of a poem. Why? Because the poems that we were trying to write in the 20th century and now in the 21st century is that we're trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? You know, not what does it mean to be great, beautiful, writing great poems, getting great awards, but what does it mean finally to be human? You know, and that's a whole nother different dialogue and, and conversation, you know, that, you know, what does it mean to be human? To walk upright as a human being. I, I remember um, <clears throat> back in the late 90s, they had a big celebration of you at Drexel University of your work. And that you invited me to come there to read a poem. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those settling in poems that you're talking about. <laughs> this, is the, this is the poem that I read for Sonia. <clears throat> it's called Blood Song. Didn't I tell you that the heart is a mouth on paper? That the paper is a flame split into lips, pursed like an arrow. And that arrow bleeds into the drum of one's tongue, trapped in memory's ear. Didn't I tell you it is hard for the wound to forget the migrating blood forced out by exile or eviction? That one man's journey is another man's fast removal from the face of the earth. That some travel in the hulls of slave ships, while others hug the bottom of rafts, swallowing oceans of mud. like to interrupt for a minute um, and invite Angela Gibson to stand up and good evening everyone Sister Sanchez, I know you've had a great Baltimore day, but we want to extend the welcome to you. 
And would all the members of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated please stand? As one of our very special guests and very special sisters, we want to present to you these beautiful pink roses in recognition of your visit and Poetry Month and all that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Would you um, take some pictures? I'm going to ask, um, there's some questions from the audience now, is it okay? Um, if you have a question for Sonia Sanchez or Tony Medina, if you'd like to come over here and um, ask your question so everyone can hear. Uh, after the Q&A, which is going to last for maybe 10, 15 minutes, um, there are copies of books outside Barnes & Noble from the power plant. Scott is here selling books, and we'll be um, having a book signing afterwards. Hi, Ms. Sanchez, Peace Queen. How are you doing, Hotep? Hotep, how are you doing, my dear brother? I'm absolutely blessed. My mama was an English teacher. Uh -huh. And she actually taught us like a love of language and the power of the words. And I observed some of the decades that the cultural African struggle has been in motion. And I see a whole uh, continuum when I hear you talking about common and the next generation or the current generation um, being in harmony with some of the poets who put some things in motion. And I heard your work with uh, Jill Scott, mm -hmm. and I see that bridge in reality. Can you speak more about a continuum as opposed to this poses that? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I think, don't you, Tony, that there is a continuum. You know, I've, I've seen it. Uh, I've seen, I've taught generation after generation after generation. Um, uh, and, you know, many of them have continued to do uh, this thing called poetry or playwriting or uh, prose or novels. Um, they've continued to this great tradition, what I call uh, the great American tradition of, of writing. The reason why we started something called Black Studies in America in, in the mid-1960s is because you didn't study uh, African American literature. It wasn't any place in, uh, you know, period. And so what we did is we started and said, you know, there is something called black folks and Latinos and, 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 and Asians and Native Americans writing in America. And we need to really study that. So that's what we did. Um, uh, but it's under the rubric of American literature, although quite often America still insists probably on things that we don't write well, most especially if we are political, you know. Um, although we will, we will, we will constantly talk about the political writers all over the world except in this country. The moment you're political in this country, they say you write 
you don't write well, you know what I mean? You really need to get into another part of yourself, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. But that's real. That's not make-believe. I've experienced that. And so I know that it does exist. Um, uh, many of us have, you know, we can't. So therefore, what we have to do is always, you know, um, perhaps there, should, there is an allusion to something political, you know, but not out and out the kind of language um, that that Jimmy Baldwin or many of us you know have have done uh, and insisted on doing at some point. Most especially in this thing my brother called Black English. Every ten years, there's a question about is there really something called Black English in America? And I'm always called, you know, by a reporter from someplace, you know, the Washington Post, the last time a couple of years ago. And I said, you should read the article that Jimmy Baldwin did in the New York Times in 1979. It's already there, you know. And they asked him the question, is there such a thing as black English? And he said, yes. And he said, thank God there is that because it invigorates this, this, this thing called the Queen's English. Without it, he said it would be a drab language without the input of black folks, you know, in this thing called English. Now, I'm not being, you know, uh, you know, just trying to be, you no, know, I'm not just trying to be funny about that, but it's true. I mean, I mean, there, there is so much truth. We learned a language in a place called America, not in schools. Like, you brought here speaking African language, different ones, and they said, okay, y'all, pick up. Pick up the English. Not in school, just on your own. So therefore, we, when we picked up the language, listen to this under the same way that we spoke African languages. That's why we placed things the way we did. And they said it's bad, bad English. But we were using what we already knew and what we had brought from another continent. That's why we spoke the way we spoke. That's why we said things the way we said things. That's not make-believe, you can read it. It's already down, I'm not just saying this. You know, and we began to understand that at some point. And then said simply, hey, that is a language. You know, but we also understand you live in a place called America. And so you have to know the other language out there too. And so therefore you say very simply, you know, you go out for jobs. You can't go in speaking black English for that job, right? You know, you know. But when I started to teach and students came in and they said they could not write. I mean, they said they couldn't write, you know, essays, whatever. I used to have them take themselves. And then I had it transcribed. And then I said, read what you said. And they read it, and their heads popped back and said, hey, that's good. Then I said, listen to this. Listen to that beautiful black English you're speaking, some of you. Now we have to translate it into the dominant language, and it's going to lose some of the beauty. Because in all translations, it loses the beauty. That's what happened in this country. That's how we taught. And that's what we made people understand, that they begin to say, oh, I can, right? I am okay. I'm not dumb and stupid the way they said I was. And we came in and interfered with that thing called, in quote, stupidity that they put on our children, you see. And Jimmy Baldwin, that great writer, and I mean, he was a great writer, who never was given one bloody award in America, whatever, because he never backed down. But I like to say, you know how naive we are. I was, the last time I saw Jimmy, we were in Atlanta, and he had been commissioned to write a piece 
on the Atlanta murders, right? And so I had been invited down to Atlanta to, to be um, playwright in residence, to listen to the young plays by people, young people writing, not just young people writing in Atlanta. So like you had a play at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then a play at 12 noon, and then a play at 4, and then the best play at 8 p.m., and you had to comment on it all the time. I walked in after the first day, out of my head tired, and there was the, one of the writers from Playboy, and he said, Professor Sanchez, oh, would you help me? Would you help me? Uh, he said, I'm waiting for the article from James Baldwin, from Jimmy, and he's inside holding court, and he was. Jimmy Baldwin was inside holding court, must have been about 20 people listening to him talk as Jimmy talked and drank. So I said, okay, I, I got to go to bed. I said, I have seen four plays today. And there were four plays that just knocked me out, not because they were good, but just knocked me out, right? <laughs> <coughs> I need some sleep. So I went, in the, and Jimmy saw me. He said, come on in. So I slid in. I said, Jimmy, I got 30 minutes. That's it. Whatever. The, the guy from Playboy want, needs that article you know, that he finally put into the book. What is that? The book? Um, Price of the Ticket? Huh? Price of the Ticket? No, the other one. Um, oh, jeez. On the Murders. No. Anyway, that book. <laughs> um, Evidence of Things. Evidence of Things, that's right. And so I said to him, he's waiting. And then Jimmy laughed at me. And being another writer, I knew what that meant. It was ready, you know. And so he said, come on, stay. And I remember he was, he was being very reflective. But two things happened. I saw fear for the first time in Jimmy Baldwin's eyes of what was happening in Atlanta that I hadn't seen in years. That was a fearful scene, people. That was a dangerous turf down there, whatever. And the other thing, I saw a man who was getting older, and he was angry at this country for not recognizing him for his genius. So I said very dramatically, oh, don't worry, Jimmy. I said, oh, don't you worry. I said, we always will teach you in the universities, you know, and all the young people and all the students will know you. And he gave me a look like, Sonia, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about awards every now and then, you know, for doing <laughs> stuff, you know. I got dramatic, you know. <laughs> I went upstairs at 6 o'clock in the morning, stepped in a shower, put on some more clothes, came downstairs, and Jimmy was getting ready to eat breakfast down there, right, and went on about my business to do um, an 8 o'clock play, a 12 o'clock play, a 4 o'clock play, and an 8 o'clock play. But this man, this genius, this man who gave us words, and books that set the tone for us on how we responded to racism in America, how we responded you know, to universities, how we responded to literature, how we responded to living in Harlem, how we responded to the world, period. He's a great, great writer. And if you have not read him, you really read him. If you want to be a great essayist, right, read Jimmy Baldwin. He was the greatest essayist that America has produced in this country. Right. Greatest.
Good evening, my sister and my teacher. Uh, good evening, my dear brother. Mm -hmm. um, back in 19, back in the 80s, you and I were part of an organization called No Business as Usual, mm -hmm. and I called you up on the phone and you read a poem over the phone, which I then transcribed onto a compact, I mean, not compact disc, onto, into a tele, telephone answering machine, and literally so many people called to hear that poem that <laughs> I had to go out and buy a new answering machine. <laughs> but I would like to respond in kind by first reading a reciting a short poem and then asking you a question. If the stars in the sky were really spirit poets floating in space, reflecting in or radiating the fertile energy of life, they would worship the darkness because they would know that the darkness has empowered them so that they may glow and twinkle in harmony with the ebony essence of creation and transform their inner beauty into outer space. And my question is, um, although some people know me as trying to pass off a paper every once in a while to them, I've written um, several political poems, and I sometimes go into these open mic readings where there's something which it's called erotica, which passes off as really badly written pornography. And it seems like, it seems like more and more these days there's um, a, a threat that young poets um, it's like a slippery slope. One one person writes erotica, and the next person has to out lower themselves mm. until you you find you know like Bob Dylan would say, "Oh my God, am I here all alone?" And they turn to political revolutionary-minded poets, and they say, "Why do you have to write that stuff?" I'd like your comments on those. Right. Well, you know, basically all poetry is political. You know, either you. You write to maintain the status quo, or you talk about change. Well, really, really think on that, you know. And I think that I don't ever call poetry that talks about love erotica, you know. But you, if you read the poets that came out of the 60s, they always wrote love poems. You know, although some poets said you shouldn't write love poems because until we were free, and I said, well, by golly, by gee, when we are free, we won't even know how to love, you know. <laughs> You gotta write, and you gotta do it always with a sometimes tongue in cheek, and you gotta do things with the blues. You know what I mean? And and the things like when when I saw when I once saw on the corner, I was going to the post office on the Saturday, and I left the house late. The post office closed at 12 noon on Saturday. I got to the corner there, 125th Street and St. Nicholas. Um, post office one block away and I'm standing on this corner and this sister said out loud to this brother but man you shouldn't have asked me to do that he said well baby 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 you didn't do it you know <laughs> right and you know my children are right you know we are really I mean we are snoops poets I stood there like this looking you know <laughs> Not recording, you know, whatever. She said, no, 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 man, man, you shouldn't have asked me to do that. He said, well, baby, 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 you didn't do it. It's okay. It's cool. And he got on in the car and was gone. And she said, you know how you want to go over and hug someone and say, it'll be okay. And I headed over and she looked at me and gave me a look like, whoa, you know, whatever. So I stood there, went home, missed the post office, and I wrote a poem that said, my old man tells me I'm so full of sweet loving, he can smell me coming. Maybe I should bottle it and sell it when he goes. 
That's a hard poem, you know. But that's what I saw right there in that street, whatever. And then the same thing about like someone said, well, you know, you know, uh, you know, you know. I said, no, the blues is seditious. I mean, the blues is really important. So, you know, I would say, you know, I've been keeping company with the layaway man. I say, I've been keeping company with the layaway man. It's time to come by. We do it on the installment plan. <laughs> think on that. I mean, think what that's really saying. That's the joy of the blues, right? You know, and being raised in a house of a brother, of, a, of, of my father, who was also a musician, the drummer who taught Papa Joe Jones how to play, that's my father. But during the day, he would have on the radio, Dara's day, K Sarah, Sarah, <laughs> whatever will be, will be, you know, like, whoa, right? But at night at the parties, they had on Dinah Washington and Billie Holiday. And Dinah would be talking about going to the dentist, right, to get my teeth fixed and drilled. Years later, you realize that they were not talking about no teeth, you know, at that point, right? <laughs> But that's the beauty of that blues, whatever. And you discover that you know, later on, um, the way people said things. But that was my father who was part of that, uh, the Duke Ellington kind of range, right? You know, that they were the first black musicians in Alabama, the first jazz band in Alabama. So they went into the Alabama Jazz Hall of Fame. So when people like Coltrane came, my father would like, what is that? You know? Or when, when Bebop came, my father went, what is that? Whatever, et cetera. I mean, really. And because, and it's the same thing that each generation, or when, 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 when uh, hip hop came, when rap came. I mean, I'm not a revisionist, people. You know, at the beginning, I would come home, my children would listen to this loud, loud stuff, and I'd park my car, go in the house, and say, cut it down, turn it down. It's so loud. And they would say, oh, mom, mom, you're just not listening. I said, I don't want to listen to that. And, so, it's so, and then I would say, justify. It's so fast. I can't understand it. It's so fast, fast. And then one of them just looked at me one day and said, you know, mom, you're from New York. You speak so fast that sometimes we have trouble keeping up with you. And then I knew it was generational. And I was backing away from a generational thing. And then I said, you know, and I used to have things always on Sundays where we would um, do instead of, you know, we would like take the phone off the hook and for two hours we'd have something that we did together on a Sunday, right? That was real. And that came about once because I heard the children talking about, you know, I was serving them dinner with some friends who had come over the state for the weekend. And they would talk about some girl who was like fast, you know, whatever that means, and was, you know, giving up, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm listening to this serving food, right, you know? And, and I'm trying to keep quiet, right? And then I finally said, well, what do you mean she, whatever? And, and they were like really, you know, had already put her down, right? So I said simply, well, you know, if, if she's doing that, and he's doing that. He's just as bad as she is. Oh, mom, you don't understand. Double standard. You don't understand, you know. And then, then they looked at me like, we were friends. How are you talking about this stuff? So I backed away. But that 
weekend after their friends had gone, I said, next Sunday, what we're going to have is a thing on sex. I would do an hour on what I know, and you do an hour on what you know. I, whoa. What I learned, the stuff that these young kids know, know and don't know, I was floored by it. I mean, really was. You know, all the corrections you had to make. It was very real stuff. And I finally had to come out after I listened to what they said. I said, do you remember that day I was in my room, my door was shut, which meant that you knock on the door, right? I was, I come out the shower. I was drying myself off. You two were arguing, you know, running down the hallway. You burst into the room and stopped. I was buck naked. And I looked up and said, yeah, you know, hi. Okay. You didn't knock on the door. Yes, mommy has breasts. Mommy has a vagina. You have a penis, right? Now get out here and go on about your business. <laughs> you know, but because I didn't give them names like that's a ding-a-ling kind of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> you had to change it years later to a penis, you know, whatever. I mean, come on. I guess what I'm saying... This is what we know to be true about our children, what they learn outside, and how we have to correct it sometimes. You know, when we do a thing on love, we do a thing on sex, we do a thing on music. So my children said, fine, let's do one on music next week. Whoa. And they came with, interesting, what they had heard in the house. They came with Coltrane and all this thing, whatever. And then all of a sudden they did rap. And I'm sitting down like this and I'm going like, oh my God, I don't hear a thing. I can't make out the language. I can't make out the words. What are they saying? And they very calmly would start it again. And then they would say, then they start saying it with it. And then, one, and then Marani, who's very quiet, said, well, Mom, why don't you just say it as fast as they're saying it, like you would ordinarily say it, and then you could hear yourself speak it. But what I did is I started listening. And that's what I say to you. Listen to what your children are listening to. Listen to what they are hearing. Listen to what they're saying in these raps. You know? And then you can make a decision about what's good, what's bad, what's indifferent, whatever. Because quiet as it's kept, one of the things that we know, one of the reasons that we know is that when the soldiers come home dead now and we don't see them on television anymore because a number of rappers talk about casualties of war. Rakim did an amazing thing about casualties of war and the body bags. They stopped it. That's what he did. If he did nothing else, he did that, whatever, and made us truly understand that those were people dead people in those body bags, and they were casualties of war, people, whatever. And so, yeah, we have to look up and understand how important they are as poets. And so I said to people, that's a poet. So, yeah, I don't see differences at all, you know. I call many of the rappers who write some amazing words and use language in an amazing way, these are poets, poetry also, too. We've always had poets, you know, who are out there saying things with music, saying things out loud, saying things with a boombox, saying things with, you know, whatever. But they are there. 
And they've said some very important things, my brothers and sisters, and we've got to really listen to what our young people are saying, you know, about what goes on in the Bronx, you know, what's going on with someone dying, you know, you know, what goes on when you don't have power? What goes on when you're killed in the streets? What goes on when our children aren't getting education? They did all those songs, all those raps about all those things. And one of the things they constantly reminded people, when people got quiet about Malcolm, they kept calling Malcolm's name out loud. Yes, they did. And Garvey's name. When only the poets were doing it, they also went and said it and did it. And that was important that we understand that. Okay. Right. Well, I greet you, Mama and the brother. I'm an elder woman's movement lady in Baltimore. So I'm here because I'm an activist. I work with young people. And my question is, as a professor, the elder, the elder culture, I'm a griot, the elder culture of living is being removed. We are living in the Moses era as black artists and storytellers and writers. And I, I, I just want to ask, where do you think the interventions to come in for teaching our children about the red list, you know, the list that um, Lena Horne went on, Ozzy Davis went on, Herb Belafonte went on, Paul Robertson went on, James Baldwin went on, all the powerful people that said politics is how I act, how I receive, how I interact, and the schools are not teaching our children about these powerful people. I'm an elder, um, I'm a writer, and I would just like to ask you as a professor, for the young people that's listening, I say the womb, but you know, people have different tastes. But I would just like to ask you, where do you think the intervention for our children to start being taught all the powers of to, to activate, you know, to activate yourself, to have those ancestors that activated themselves? Where do you think the intervention for the children to come in and get there so they can have a well-balanced system of listening and speaking. There are some schools here. Uh, um, Professor Gray, you run a school that does that. What, tell, tell them what the name of your school. Mm. We, have, we have two schools. Uh, they're, called, they're known in this city as NAC, Northwood Apple Community Academy. One, I know. Five, and then NAC two, right now we're six through eight. It's a traditional curriculum, reading, writing, science, history, all of the things that you have to have to navigate life as it is. We also do what we call freedom and democracy. And that's what we, we work with those persons, those personalities, those movements, those moments in our history as, as African people and then global history, across cultures, across yeah, time, where we, uh, we teach these people, these principles, so, so that the young people, you know, as they grow up, and move out, they'll, they'll have what they need. <coughs> right. And they do exist, uh, you know, here. And I'm, and I'm sure you know that uh, mm -hmm. also, too. You want to talk about how you also teach, my dear brother? Well, <clears throat> I teach at Howard University. And um, last semester, 
I was off. It was a Wednesday. Um, <clears throat> I had the news on. And they said, oh, there's a protest at Howard University. The students are meeting at the flagpole on the yard, protesting the, execu the planned execution of Troy Davis. So I said, oh, I got to go over there. So I jumped in the car, went to the campus, and with the students, rallied, and then marched all the way down to the White House. Myself and 12 other students ended up getting arrested. Our image of being in handcuffs and the students sitting in front of the White House with their fists raised high like this was all over the place because other students started tweeting everything and putting it on Facebook and all that stuff. A couple of days later, I'm on the campus and I get a, um, a phone call from Sonia Sanchez. She found out that we got arrested. She wanted to know if everything was all right. Um, and it, she wanted to come down to the campus and have a conversation with me, with the students, about peaceful protest and learning how to get arrested and not get in trouble on top of that. <laughs> this is to say that in terms of getting the younger people involved in learning, about you know great revolutionaries like Paul Robeson and, 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 and all these heroes and stuff like that. It's twofold. They're gonna they're gonna get that through the internet and, and this and that. They're also gonna get it through their own other peers and in the classroom. What what do you they don't I teach, I do Theater. I do Yeah, the thing the thing is that um, it's it's like what Sonia was saying with this brother over here. You gotta have the type of schools that do that, and you gotta have community centers like we had when I was growing up in the projects in the Bronx. Um, last semester I had a class. No, this semester I had a class where <clears throat> I took my class to this. Um, art exhibition of all these various artists dealing with Africa, dealing with slavery and all this type of stuff, right? 
the woman who was giving the um, the tour, who, who's in control of the gallery, she was asking my students certain questions. A lot of them was very silent, right? They didn't know the answers. There's a charter school right on campus that's a middle school, right? I did a free workshop, a series of workshops with those students, and the first workshop was that they had to come to that gallery and respond to the work. But before they can do that, she had to take them on a tour of the art, and she had to ask them the questions. And these middle school kids, when she asked those questions about Africa and slavery and all this stuff, they knew the answers because of the school and also because of their age for some reason. When they get older, for some reason, they get kind of um, distracted, self-conscious. I'm not sure what happens. But there is a lot of distraction that goes on. And the other thing, too, is that we can't rely just on schools to teach our children their history and history, you know? That um, we've got to start, I mean, I, what I always remember is that the first time I realized that I, at the time, we call a Negro, we lived in Alabama, and my grandmother took care of me and my sister. We lived in a house of women with three aunts and my grandmother. And every day we'd go outside and we'd play. And this is in Alabama. So we would run out and play with little white kids across the street. They could cross the street. We couldn't. So they came across the street, and they came and played. And one day we came outside and said, hey, come on, come on. The little boy said, uh-uh. And then I said, we said, why? My sister and I said, why? Because you're niggas. So I walked inside and said to mama, what son? N nigger. And her response was in this very sad way, oh, that's what they call us. You know, blah, 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 blah. That's it. But that's not how you teach history, through that negativity. You know, and what we're talking about is teaching our history and history. But many people have gotten educations and don't think it's important to teach our children that history. They say, get an education. You know, we put them in pockets where we send them to what we call good schools. And they come out well-educated, able to get a good job, but don't have a clue about who they are, how they live, you know. And what power, what power they should have, you know, and how to exert that power. Because it's one thing to have a job. It's another thing, you know, you know to be a job, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm sorry. Thank you.